All right, let's go, everybody. It is Monday, January 23rd. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Okay, before we start, Moshe, a big congratulations to you for being selected for the National Press Foundation's Chairman's Citation. I just want to read a little bit from the press release. Quote, it recognizes individuals whose accomplishments fall outside the traditional categories of excellence, but who nevertheless have a profound impact on journalism. And I particularly liked what the chairperson, Amos Sneed, had to say Mo News provides a daily news feed to engaged media consumers, oftentimes bringing audiences back who have turned away from news based on hyper-partisan political times, which, Moshe, I think is the highest compliment. Jill, it's a true honor uh, to be recognized, for Mo News to be recognized, an honor for all of us. You know, it's really incredible because it really started in the beginning of covid uh, I was doing this on Instagram for a couple hundred friends and family back like three years ago for my personal account, and it found an audience. And so it's really amazing to see the growth that this has had. It's turned into a brand. We're receiving recognition. Uh, when they actually called me last month to ask about the award, saying, hey, we'd like to consider you or like to give you this award. I was like, are you sure? You know, given all the previous winners, <laughs> me? <laughs> me, just little old me, like your previous winners come from, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and ABC and, you know, all these um, incredibly uh, well-decorated uh, journalists and correspondents. And they said, no, this is not a mistake. We absolutely think what you guys and the Mo News team are doing is changing the landscape. And so it's some really exciting news uh, to be recognized in the company uh, of those other journalism organizations. And what's really cool about the National Press Foundation, Jill, it's a nonprofit that raises money for journalism scholarships and training for the next generation, which, as we know, is super important that we get well-trained, sharp journalists to cover the news. Absolutely. All right. Well, we are really proud of you. I am very proud of you, Moshe, and very excited. Thanks, Jill. Okay, Moshe, now let's get to some of the big headlines that we're following. A deadly mass shooting on Lunar New Year's Eve in California. We've got the latest from Los Angeles. The FBI searched Joe Biden's home and finds more classified documents. It comes as Biden has chosen a new White House chief of staff. We'll tell you all about him. Activists from both sides of the abortion debate figure out the next steps on the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Google declares a code red and is now calling in its founders as it faces a new threat. Beyonce got paid $24 million for her latest private concert. We'll tell you who was there and where it was. And of course, Moshe has on this day. All right, let's start with what we know about that horrific mass shooting in Los Angeles over the weekend. Sheriff's deputies have now identified the alleged gunman, 72-year-old Hu Can Tran, who ultimately took his own life following a police pursuit. But let's take a step back. Late Saturday night, a gunman killed 10 people, five men and five women, at a ballroom dance studio amid Lunar New Year celebrations in the predominantly Asian-American community of Monterey Park. He injured about 10 others. He then appeared to try and fail to attack a second dance hall, according to authorities. Again, this happened on Lunar New Year's Eve, about seven miles east of downtown Los Angeles. The sheriff says about 20 minutes after the shooting, that same gunman walked into another dance hall in the neighboring suburb of Alhambra. He said some individuals wrestled the firearm from him and the individual took off. Officials say he had a semi-automatic assault pistol with a large capacity magazine attached. 
The shooting sent a wave of fear through Asian American communities in the Los Angeles area and also throughout the country as the Lunar New Year festivities were underway. The shooter was on the loose throughout Sunday until police tracked him down Sunday in the city of Torrance, which is also in the Los Angeles area. Yeah, Joe, let's talk about how they got him. Pretty quick work by the L.A. Sheriff's Department and local law enforcement. So a white cargo van was spotted leaving the scene of the shootings on Saturday night. And so the police overnight on Saturday through the morning hours on Sunday were looking for white vans matching the description across the L.A. area. Authorities eventually stopped a van in the Torrance area, which also has a a very large Asian American population that they believe was connected to the gunman. There was then a standoff as the driver refused to leave the vehicle. The driver then shot himself before officers could approach. Eventually, a SWAT team moved in, swarmed the vehicle, and found him dead. Jill, as we record this on Sunday night, I'm watching a a live feed uh, from Choppers uh, in L.A. covering the aftermath of the Torrance standoff. I've seen at least one box removed from the uh, truck that contained a gun. There are still questions Sunday night as to the motive here. Uh, What led him to commit this mass shooting? Uh, There are uh, reports from the party that it may have uh, emanated from a domestic dispute with his wife, who was potentially at one of the festivities on Saturday night. This is according to witnesses. So we'll continue to track those details. Either way, this mass shooting is one of California's worst in recent memory. Monterey Park has a population of about 60,000 people. About two-thirds of them are Asian American. This is really hitting the community hard. This was the first big in-person Lunar New Year celebration in three years. We're starting to hear stories about the absolute terror that unfolded. One person said the shooter appeared to just be firing indiscriminately. Again, this is one of the largest holiday events in the region. Just hours before the shooting, Crowds were celebrating, eating, shopping for Chinese food and and jewelry. One person who lives nearby said that she was in bed shortly before 11 p.m. and heard what sounded like firecrackers, which, of course, um, sadly, were the gunshots. A bit about this dance studio, it's been around for about 30 years. On Saturday night, they were holding an event called Star Night. One of the instructors who works there said there are couples who have been going for years. It's a lot of people who are retired, some in their 90s. Um, He said, quote, it is old people dancing to music for fun. It is their exercise. Just so, so tragic, Jill. You know, unfortunately, it's it's far too common. You know, there was another incident um, completely separate at a Walmart in Evansville, Indiana on uh, Thursday. That was a disgruntled former employee who went in there, was eventually stopped by the police after shooting one of his former co-workers. So either these attempted mass shootings or in this case, mass shooting in California, just Um, happening far, far too often. Now to the FBI search of Biden's home. During a search Friday of his home in Wilmington, Delaware, the FBI found several more documents with classified markings and took possession of some of his handwritten notes. Biden voluntarily allowed the FBI into his home on Friday. The search lasted about 13 hours. The FBI took six items that contained documents with classified markings, According to the president's personal lawyer, the items spanned his time both in the Senate and also the vice presidency. The notes dated to his time as vice president, he said. The classification level and whether the documents removed were classified, not exactly clear right now. This latest search is now the fourth discovery of classified documents dating back to November. They've been found in the garage and office of his home in Wilmington. 
also his private office that he was using in D.C. after he was vice president. Speaking to reporters uh, late last week, Biden said he was fully cooperating, looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. He said at the time, we found a handful of documents that were filed in the wrong place and we turned them over. Uh, But there is frustration among Democrats, Jill, because they're like, how does this keep happening where you found some documents in November, you found some more in December, you found some more in January. At some point, you now invited the FBI in. They found even more documents. Some of these documents from your time as vice president, some of them, as you noted, from his time in the Senate. Jill, he hasn't been in the Senate for 15 years, which means those documents ostensibly were in his home or in his possession, classified documents, for more than 15 years. Uh, A friend of his and longtime colleague, Dick Durbin, he's a senator from Illinois who's in Senate Democratic leadership, told one news show on Sunday that Biden should be, quote, embarrassed by the situation. He says that Democrats have effectively ceded the moral high ground on classified records issues that he feels they had when the whole Trump thing came out over the summer. He said, let's be honest about it. When that information is found, it diminishes the stature of any person who is in possession of it because it's not supposed to happen. The elected official bears ultimate responsibility. Joe Manchin, another Democrat, said Biden should have a lot of regrets. You just might as well say, listen, it's irresponsible. The president, though, says he has no regrets uh, and that there was no there there. Despite their criticism, Democrats are still defending the president because he's cooperating with the Justice Department. They're trying to contrast that with Trump's resistance to efforts to recover the hundreds of documents he took with him to Mar-a-Lago. Either way, there are two special counsels, as we've told you about. There's a special counsel uh, named Jack Smith, who's investigating the Trump documents. And then there's the most recently appointed special counsel, Robert Hur, who's investigating the Biden classified documents. Former President Trump is taking glee in this on his social media account. Overall, there is this feeling among Democrats that they feel that they you know, really had something to uh, attack President Trump on, former President Trump on, should he uh, be the nominee again? And should it be a Biden-Trump race again, which, you know, at this juncture in early January, mid-January, still appears to be a possibility next year, uh, they feel that they can no longer make that argument against Trump because, look, look what the president did. Moshe, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Senator Manchin. I watched him on Meet the Press on Sunday, and I, I thought it was an interesting point just about, look, Biden, just say you made a mistake because he was supposed to be the the straight shooter. He had said when he came into office, if I make a mistake, I'll admit it. So here it is. It's like Manchin said, really? There's no, you don't regret anything? There's nothing you would have done differently? We've now have, the FBI is pulling classified documents from your house from 20 years ago. Right. The FBI just spent 13 hours in your home that you invited them in on Friday and found even more classified documents that your lawyers couldn't find in three previous searches. But uh, we will, uh, needless to say, keep tracking this story. All right, before we get to our speed read and the rest of the day's news, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors this week. Let's start with Athletic Greens. Jill, I know you have recently started their AG1 supplement. Every morning, Mosh, as a new parent, I am permanently sleep deprived and it feels like someone in my house is always sick. So I definitely need all of the help that I can get. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop of a glass of water in the morning. The AG1 powder contains over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. In addition, AG1 has pre and probiotics to help support gut health. And here's the best news. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it 
one time for just a month. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. All right, we have another amazing deal from our other sponsor this week, Bull and Branch Betting and Sheets. They're extending their special deal for Mo News listeners. Bull and Branch took notice in the fall as we had a discussion about top sheets versus duvets, uh, and they're really excited about um, how passionate the Mo News community is about uh, a good night's sleep, their uh, sleep arrangements, and their betting. And so they're offering right now Mo News listeners. 15% off plus free shipping for a limited time with the promo code MONEWS. My wife, Alex, and I got a full set of their sheets in the fall. Sleeping on them nightly, they get softer with every wash. A reminder, we literally spent a third of our lives in bed, as at least we should, eight hours a night. So sheets are a very big deal. And here's a fun fact thrown to me by the Bull and Branch people. President Clinton and President Bush both have used Bolin brand sheets, so that is a bipartisan what? endorsement there. Yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Apparently, Jill. So uh, again, presidents from both parties uh, using Bolin brand sheets. A reminder again on the deal for a limited time: get fifteen percent off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use the promo code Mo News over at bullandbranch.com. That is Bull and Branch B O L L A N D Branch.com. Promo code Mo News. Time now for the speed read from Politico. President Biden is expected to tap Jeff Zients as his next chief of staff. Three people familiar with the decision confirmed on Sunday. Ron Klain, who has served in the role since Biden's inauguration, is expected to leave after the president's State of the Union address in early February. So who is Jeff Zients? And yes, that is how you pronounce his last name. Um, it is spelled, in case you, you've only seen it, it's Z-I-E-N-T-S. He is a former Obama administration official and close Biden confidant. He ran the White House's COVID response, winning internal praise for his cross-government management skills. Moshe, I, I feel like that's just Washington speak for he got along with everyone, regardless of their department. <laughs> they <laughs> picked up his right, right. cross-government. So they, they picked up his phone calls and he seemed to be able to help communication between Capitol Hill and the White House. He's held a number of high-level positions across the Obama and Biden presidencies. He's going to take over, though, amid a divided government, an increasingly contentious debt ceiling fight, and the likely launch of a re-election campaign. He's maintained close ties to the departing chief of staff, Ron Klain, and other senior Biden aides dating back to the Obama administration. Jill, while chiefs of staff are not typically household names, they are the most powerful people in the White House besides the president. Uh, presidents uh, joke that they spend more time or as much time with their chiefs of staff as they do with their spouse. Uh, and presidents with good chiefs of staff will succeed. Presidents with bad chiefs of staff will fail. Uh, Clean has been in the job for two years, which by chief of staff standards is a pretty good run at this juncture in their presidency. Both Trump and Obama were already on their third chief of staff. Uh, ultimately, one of the things they do is manage the thousands of employees, staff, agencies within the executive, uh, manage the legislative strategy for the president. They determine who meets with the president, uh, what uh, their priorities are, how to manage their time, etc. So Klain has had a mixed record. Uh, they've had some legislative achievements, obviously the better than expected midterm survival, you know, maintaining the Senate, not losing as many seats in the House as one expected. Though Biden at this time still at a 40% approval rating nationally, uh, facing multiple investigations from the House, a special counsel looking at this classified document scandal, 
a re-election. Uh, at least that's what we believe. He will be running for re-election. So given all of these new changes, all the things expected, a natural time for a new person the president reportedly views Zions as a master implementer. But one of the knocks going into this is that what Zions has in organizational skills, he lacks an extensive political experience. So that'll be a big question here as to whether he can get his approval rating up and manage what will potentially be a re-election campaign, as well as day-to-day workings of the White House, managing all the senior advisors, the communication strategy, the communications team, legislative strategy, all the things the chief of staff has to do. Uh, and there is some criticism coming from the Democratic Party's progressive wing that we're hoping for a uh, woman or person of color in the role. Okay, switching gears from the Washington Post, the Virginia teacher who was shot by a six-year-old student repeatedly asked administrators for help with the boy, but officials downplayed educators' warnings about his behavior, including dismissing his threat to light a teacher on fire and watch her die, according to messages from teachers obtained by the Washington Post. The previously unreported incidents raised fresh questions about how Richneck Elementary School in Newport News handled the troubled student before police say he shot that teacher, Abigail Zwerner, as she taught her first grade class earlier this month. On one occasion, the boy wrote a note telling a teacher he hated her and wanted to light her on fire and watch her die, according to the teacher's account. Alarmed, the teacher brought the note to the attention of Rich Neck administrators and was told to drop the matter, according to the account. The date of the incident was not mentioned. The principal and vice principal of the school did not respond to requests for comment. On a second occasion, the boy threw furniture and other items in class, prompting students to hide beneath their desks, according to the account. Another time, the teacher alleges in her account, the boy barricaded the doors to a classroom, preventing a teacher and students from leaving. And Mosh, this story has gotten an incredible response on your Instagram page. Yeah, I I posted this article over the weekend when it came out uh, via the Washington Post and just the number of teachers from nearly every state in the union, from Utah, from North Carolina, from Missouri, from California, uh, blue states, red states, rural areas, uh, urban schools, parents as well, all uh, telling uh, me about their experiences. And unfortunately, similar to this, uh, teachers telling stories about how they're being hit, punched, harassed in the classroom from kids as young as kindergartners, and they have no way to really punish or deal with the kids. Schools are scared of parents Uh, you know, legal issues that parents might sue. There are laws that say you can't touch the kids or teenagers, even if they're attacking you. Uh, In many cases, you know, they have these repeat students that continue to have issues in the classroom and, you know, will start to throw chairs or desks. uh, And then they have to remove all the other kids from the classroom until that kid calms down, as opposed to being able to remove the particular student causing the issue in the classroom. Heard from parents who said, you know, their their kids are coming home and acting out because of the behavior of some of the students um, in the classes. And then there's the issue of, you know, I'm asking like, well, so why can't they suspend these kids or deal with them in some way? And they're like, well, suspensions are a bad look for the schools. Uh, And so ultimately, schools are incentivized to not suspend students. So kids that are acting out and physically assaulting teachers are being allowed back into that same classroom with the same teacher, sometimes the next day. Moshe, I read every one of those notes that you'd posted. And I feel for all these parents, I am a parent. And the one thing that I was thinking when that teacher was shot was, of course, I hope that she's okay. 
But imagine being in that class, the students, they have now, they're traumatized. They, this is going to be with them forever. And I remember you and I were talking about this and I was like, look, this does not happen in a vacuum. There is no way that this kid just got a gun and just did this. And according to all those early accounts, it was, um, it, it was targeted. And as for the larger issue, you know, there is a mental health crisis in this country. There, there is a need for more social workers, more mental health workers. But, you know, what I heard from, I think, a principal in Missouri who was like defending his school's policy um, as he read all of these notes, and I've posted them all on Instagram, by the way, they're an Instagram highlight for everyone to read through, um, is that a lot of the work with these kids needs to be done at home, that the schools are only able to do so much. And ultimately, like, if you want to work with your child, if your child is acting out, is doing some of this stuff, that the school is basically saying to the parents, you have to do something. But some of these kids come from such difficult homes. They're not getting sleep. They're not getting food. Uh, They might be witnessing violence in the home. They're then acting out in class. The schools can't do much about these kids. And so it causes some to throw their arms up in the air. But there's a larger understanding that something needs to be done beyond the schools, beyond resources, that you know, ultimately, it, it takes a village, it takes a town, and, and how do we do this, and how do we manage this situation? Because ultimately, you know, you want to be inclusive of these kids, you don't want to exclude them, but at some point, are you including them to the detriment of everybody else? Is it lowering the education, uh, and frankly, you know, to your point, is it traumatizing these other kids? And so, how do you balance that? And I think that's the challenge that I, I really you know, tried to get a better understanding of this weekend that I see that hundreds of schools across the country are trying to figure out. From the New York Times, Google has asked co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin for help after issuing a code red following the release of Chat GPT and artificial intelligence technology. The release of Chat GPT in November has sparked internal concerns over the continued dominance of Google's search engine. CEO Sundar Pichai held meetings about Google's artificial intelligence strategy in December. And the company reportedly issued a code red after the AI bot rapidly gained traction. That prompted calls from the CEO to Page and Bryn more than three years after they stepped down from executive roles. According to the report, Page and Bryn had several meetings with executives last month to strategize about Google's AI and approved plans to incorporate more chatbot features into its search engine. Page and Bryn had not really been closely involved with the company's operations since 2019. Yeah, it appears the old adage, nothing lasts forever, though Google would really like its uh, its superiority over all things search to last forever. And so this is their big concern right now. A reminder, chat GPT, uh, we've been telling you about it since the fall. Uh, that's when it amassed 1 million users in just five days. It streamlines the search process. It's, it basically automates things. It can take on a number of complex tasks like writing a children's book, responding to dating app matches, writing cover letters, uh, giving career coaching advice. You literally write one line. It effectively automates it. Google's a little freaked out by this because they feel like they're not going to be able to compete and they need to be able to compete. So according to the New York Times, they now intend to unveil more than 20 new products this year, uh, also demonstrate a version of its search engine that has some chatbot and AI features. This is according to a slide presentation the New York Times got a hold of that was presented um, at Google Google, a reminder here, has a lot of infrastructure, right? It's a huge company, many levels of approval, legal concerns about copyrights, uh, you know, the state of misinformation, 
hate speech, uh, ensuring it prevents personally identifiable information uh, to appear in searches, whereas ChatGPT is like this new upstart and can really do a lot more without regard to you know all the legalities, et cetera. So Google is also trying to figure out ways it can streamline approvals to get some of this innovation out there quicker than they planned. My biggest takeaway from it is kind of how you started. These companies that once seemed absolutely invincible, maybe not so, right? There's always another company and you've always got to stay on your toes. The, the fact that Google, yes, it's a verb, you know, there's still competition out there. Yeah, that's the thing that um, all the tech companies are really facing. And at some point, you know, Amazon, they, they try to keep tabs on all their competition. But at the same point, the same way they disrupted things, another disruptor will come unless they're constantly innovating. And, and it'll be interesting to see kind of what goes on here and whether Google can maintain its dominance. From the AP, abortion rights supporters rallied in cities across America Sunday to demand protections for reproductive rights and mark the 50th anniversary of the now overturned Roe v. Wade U.S. Supreme Court decision. The reversal of Roe in June unleashed a flurry of legislation in the states, dividing them between those who have restricted or banned abortion and those that have sought to defend access. Sunday's protests were all under the umbrella of the Women's March that started in 2017, now focused on the state level. Sunday's main march was held in Wisconsin, where upcoming elections could determine the state Supreme Court's power balance and future abortion rights. Rallies took place in dozens of cities, including Florida's state capital, Tallahassee, where Vice President Kamala Harris gave a fiery speech before a crowd. She said, can we truly be free if families cannot make intimate decisions about the course of their own lives? Jill, anti-abortion rights protesters were out in D.C. in force on Friday for their annual March for Life. Uh, so you, you saw both sides really out there this weekend. The March for Life was the first one since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It was much more celebratory this year uh, after their big Supreme Court win in June, but they're not stopping. They remain committed, according to uh, speakers of the rally, according to uh, leaders of the various uh, anti-abortion rights groups. They want more new laws. And so notably, they did the March for Life past the U.S. Capitol for the first time and then heard uh, from several House Republican leaders who promised to pursue more legislation to limit abortions. Uh, I put up a couple clips on Instagram. This is the state of play right now. Since June, near-total bans on abortion have been implemented in the following states. Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and West Virginia. Though I should note there are legal challenges pending against several of those states uh, that uh, issued bans. Then there were bans in Ohio, Indiana, and Wyoming that have all been blocked by state courts while legal challenges are pending. And then South Carolina, the state Supreme Court there struck down a ban on abortion, uh, ruling that the restriction violates a state constitutional right to privacy. So the divided states of America when it comes to abortion here, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. But the two sides are out there uh, on the 50th anniversary weekend of Roe v. Wade talking about the path forward. From the Wall Street Journal, the Justice Department's Consumer Protection Branch is investigating potential criminal conduct at the Abbott Laboratories infant formula plants in Sturgis, Michigan. That's the plant that was shut down last year and worsened a nationwide formula shortage. The DOJ branch was involved last year in a settlement with Abbott that allowed its Sturgis plant to resume operations after FDA inspectors found a potentially deadly bacteria there. The investigation signals further scrutiny of Abbott's operation of the plant, a major source of 
of baby formula in the U.S. The company sells popular brands like Similac. Last January, FDA inspectors found bacteria at the plant after receiving reports of babies who drank the company's formula and became sick. The inspectors also found standing water, damage to drying equipment, and defects in the seams of formula cans, among other problems at that plant. That closure of the plant last year came four months after a whistleblower had submitted a report to the FDA alleging the unsanitary conditions. The agency later investigated those reports, uh, especially as nine children died allegedly drinking formula from the plant, but it was unable to identify the plant as the direct source of those infections. Abbott said last summer that there was no causal relationship that had been established between its products and any of the reported deaths, and that no salmonella had been found at the facility. Uh, Production then resumed at the Michigan plant uh, last June. As you noted, Jill, they make Similac, uh, Alimentum, Elicare, many of the most popular brands in the country. But this latest uh, news that they're uh, conducting a criminal investigation into the plant does really ratchet things up. The shortage remains quite real for many families looking for certain brands. White House officials say formula production now is outpacing levels before the recall and in-stock rates are approaching what they were before, but they do acknowledge more needs to be done to ensure all the formula gets where it is needed. I could tell you, I have seen more formula on store shelves, but you are hearing about still spotty shortages across the country. From the LA Times, Beyonce performed for an exclusive private audience for a huge hotel opening Saturday night in Dubai. She was reportedly paid $24 million for the performance at the luxury resort for the invitation-only event, according to TMZ. Her appearance was part of a three-day celebrity-filled celebration of the opening of Atlantis, the Royal on Dubai's Palm Jumeirah Island. Dubai, one of the United Arab Emirates located on the Persian Gulf, is known for over-the-top luxury hotels and experiences. The newest hotel officially opens on February 10th. Beyonce reportedly stayed in the hotel's Royal Mansion, which costs $100,000 a night. That's just like you you have so much money, you don't know what to do with it. It, It's like almost like, no, I can't. I feel like that is like somebody says like, you have one week to live and you have to spend all of your money. Go. Right. Even then, $100,000 a night on a hotel room. Like what? I We need to look further into what the Royal Mansion room is like at the uh, Atlantis, the Royal over. If you guys over there at Atlantis, the Royal uh, want to sponsor the Mo News podcast, we're available to you. Jill, there were two types of people. <laughs> and we need a sample. <laughs> and we need and we need to stay there for a night. Um, Jill, there were two types of people this weekend. There were the people in Dubai at the Beyonce concert. And then there were the rest of us. the pictures are incredible the videos are incredible she kicked off the concert singing her version of etta james at last with like fireworks going off there were fireworks at the end um obviously her husband jay-z was there she sang a duet with her daughter blue ivory kendall jenner was uh in the uh crowd rebel wilson ellen pompeo uh was there a whole assortment of influencers if you follow folks on instagram uh it was notable because the last time beyonce performed live was in december of 2018 So we're going back more than four years, and it does come just ahead of the Grammy Awards, where she has nominated for nine awards. She could become the most decorated Grammy winner of all time when the awards take place. Jill, I tried to run the numbers. Uh, She performed for 75 minutes for $24 million, which puts her at a cool 320 grand a minute, 
or $1 million per song. She obviously needs to pay her orchestra and the people who put on uh, the event, though they aren't very transparent <laughs> with uh, the cost, etc. Either way, uh, pretty good take-home rate for 75 minutes of uh, singing. I thought that the Ellen Pompeo invite was a little random. <laughs> not that nothing against Meredith Grey from from Grey's Anatomy because it is a very popular show. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I was sort of like that was the name that relatively surprised me. I imagine the agency or PR groups for Dubai that are like inviting influencers over. Like maybe one of them is just like a huge Grey's Anatomy fan. <laughs> right. like, we need Pompeo here for the opening. <laughs> All right, Jill, that now brings us to On This Day in History, uh, a couple notable historical items, and then some pop culture, as we do. On this day, 50 years ago, President Nixon spoke to the nation, announcing a deal to end the war in Vietnam. A ceasefire would start five days later. It ended uh, nearly 20 years of American involvement in that war. Also today, on a completely different wavelength, but a key moment in American history, happy 65th birthday to the Frisbee, on this day in 1957, machines at the Wham-O Toy Company rolled out their first batch of the plastic discs marketed as Frisbees. But it's interesting, Jill, because the Frisbee story actually begins 150 years ago. There was a Frisbee pie company in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and students at nearby universities would throw around the empty pie tins to each other, yelling Frisbee as they let go. So they would eat these pies, throw around the pie tins, and that effectively became the first Frisbee. Finally, like in the mid-40s, two partners invented the plastic version of the disc. They initially called it a flying saucer. America at the time was fascinated with UFOs. They eventually sell it to the Whammo Toy Company. They rename it the Frisbee based on the history. And so ultimately, you have the Frisbee. By the way, Whammo also brought us the hula hoop. Fascinating as usual, Motion. I'm just thinking at least they didn't throw the Frisbees with the pie still in them. <laughs> That's all I was thinking as you were talking about it. I'm like, they took, they ate the pie first, right? Or else they could get very, very messy. That's my understanding, Jill. We got to go back to the 1880s <laughs> in Connecticut to, to get the final story. Then a couple other pop culture items before we end on this day. 80 years ago today, Casablanca premiered in movie theaters January 23rd, 1943. Here's looking at you, kid. There you go. Humphrey <laughs> someone, Bogart. One of us had to do it. Someone had to say it. Someone <laughs> had to say it. There's actually a whole fascinating history of Casablanca. I've done it on the Instagram account. I won't do it for you guys here on the podcast today, but uh, we'll, we'll have do to find it, an opportunity. Do it. <laughs> Are you holding back on us, Moshe? That basically, the Casablanca story comes from refugees who were leaving Europe and Hollywood heard the story, but they wanted to glamorize it, so they came up with Casablanca. That basically, it's based on a real story that would, was taking place in um, other parts of Europe at the time. But when Hollywood made the film about it, they made it take place in Casablanca because they thought it would it would be more romantic. Got it. And there you have it. Um, incidentally, if you go to Casablanca today, there is a Rick's Cafe. Rick's Cafe did not exist in World War II. In fact, it didn't exist until about 20 years ago when an American diplomat created it because so many tourists would walk around Casablanca looking for Rick's Cafe. And so she was like, you know what? I'll create a Rick's Cafe. And so there is one today. And one final item, Jill, Michael Jackson, 39 years ago today, releases Thriller. The music video there is, is pretty incredible, Mosh. Yeah, a, a classic. And uh, you, you, can't, you can't walk around on a Halloween without hearing someone blasting Thriller. 
All right, everybody, a huge thank you for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And if you haven't already, follow us over on our Instagram account where it all started over at the Mo News Instagram account at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H. We'll see everyone back here tomorrow. Bye, everyone.